You are listening to Boise Fire Mission Strong Podcast, where we share stories from the field, public safety knowledge, and give an inside look into the Boise Fire Department. Here's your host, Fire Chief Mark Niemeyer. Hello, Boise, and welcome to another episode of the Mission Strong Podcast. We're here in the month of July, so what better topic to talk about than wildfire? And today I'm joined by three very distinguished guests. We have Battalion Chief Brian Ashton. We have Training Captain Garrett Kirkpack. And later we'll be joined by Jerry McAdams, our Captain of Wildfire Mitigation. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's jump right into it and talk about uh, response. The Boise foothills, especially this time of year, all the way now into what, October, November, even December, who knows, is always on our minds. It's a huge target hazard for us. A lot of homes, a lot of vegetation, and when those two combine in this summer heat can create some pretty pretty bad results uh, if we're not on top of it. So Brian, as a battalion chief, the foothills is one of your priorities in your response area. Tell our listeners a little bit about that, that wildland urban interface that we cover in the foothills. Well, it uh, spans our entire jurisdictional boundary. It goes from Lucky Peak all the way clear up to Middleton area. Uh, last night we had lightning that came through, which is one of our biggest threats. Um, and we've got crews out, still out helping the Star Fire Department on the big fire out there. As the city has grown, a lot of people have moved out into those areas. And so we've got a lot more traffic, a lot more people. Uh, the trail system has expanded probably tenfold in the last 15 years or so. So we've got people up in the hills all the time um, and a lot of traffic. And so um, our alert goes up sometime end of June, right into July. This year has been a little bit wet, so we're expecting the fire season to kick off just a little bit later than normal. But based on the fire conditions last night, it's, it's, it's ready to go now. So. Um, it's something that we take pretty seriously. All of the uh, brush rig stations uh, in the Hill Road, all of that area, Table Rock, some of those uh, areas where we've had fire before, they all do drive-throughs and they're driving, looking at neighborhoods, looking at access points, looking at places for helicopters to dip water out of, all of that. It's just part of the annual pre-plan that we do up there. So, And how many stations do we have that have wildfire apparatus in them? Uh, we've got seven. Seven stations. Yeah. The lightning strike that we saw and the, the fire out in Star, I often say we, we have topography similar to California. We can have dry fuel similar to California. A lot of times we don't see the super heavy winds that they get. Uh, those Santa Anas, but certainly watching that fire this morning with a little bit of wind, those fires move quickly in our area with the dried grasses. Has, has that been your experience? It has been. <clears throat> uh, historically, I've been around for a while. I've been uh, in the district now for 33 years working, and uh, we used to have a lot more lightning uh, and a lot more dry thunderstorms come through, and I, I don't know what the uh, reason is for the change, but last night was a perfect example there wasn't a lot of warning for it. They knew that there was gonna be um, a dry cold front that was gonna come through. Their timing was off a little bit. They thought it was nice. gonna come through a little bit um, later than it did. Uh, so it came through and it dropped, I think a lot more lightning than they had projected as well. And so, you know, uh, 1500 to 2000 lightning strikes in a half hour period in the area is, is plenty to get things started. And all of those, there was four reported fires last night and they were all lightning started. And so. That makes it pretty challenging because the crews aren't necessarily ready for that. It's a storm that comes in, uh, and especially at night, crews are asleep. And so they don't have the warning that you would have during the day for those type of events. So 
if they're not ready, we don't get a good forecast, sometimes they can sneak up on you and, and create some problems. So on a wildfire response, you know, we talked in a previous episode about structural response when I was down with Station 5, we had Engine 5 and Ladder 5 talking about uh, how they respond. How do we respond if we know we have a fire in the foothills? How does that look differently than a normal day-to-day -day response that we have? Uh, in the foothills, there's different uh, types of responses. So there's, um, there's a wildfire response. There's also a grass fire response. Um, and there's also a grass fire with structure threatened response. So anything north of, typically anything north of Hill Road is coded as a wildfire response. And the minimum response for that is four units and a battalion chief and a water tender in there. However, during the months, um, it goes from uh, June into September is an enhanced uh, wildland response. And then we get more, we get more people coming. Uh, we get a dozer from uh, Eagle Fire. So dozer 42 will come automatically and it brings two more uh, brush rigs. Uh, so the, the level of uh, response right out of the gate is higher based on the, the geography of where, you know, where it's at. And that's all been pre-planned uh, and, and put into CAD. So that's kind of an automatic response, but it doesn't take the onus off the captain that's being dispatched to know his area and know what's coming. Right. If he has a fire that, like the one last night was called in to be 20 or 30 acres and homes threatened and that, then oftentimes they're gonna to have to upgrade that response if they don't think that they have enough of the proper equipment coming. And with our development in our area and the massive growth that we have seen, we talk about structures threatened and certainly other communities have faced this too that have that wildland urban interface. But as we look out at the foothills, it's beautiful. A lot of people wanna live there. I, I would argue most of our calls up in that area have some type of structures threatened just given the density that we're seeing in the development in the foothills. Yeah, um, I remember um, in 1995, we had a fire in the front and it burnt 1,200 acres. It burnt 1,200 acres in about an hour and a half and there wasn't a structure around. Right. And I don't think right now today you can five that you could find 1,200 acres without a house uh, near it or in its path. And so our, um, our response has changed in that regard. Um, and we're thinking more about structural engines when there's structures that are gonna be threatened. So almost every wildfire response has an engine uh, rolling on it. And it's certainly a consideration uh, for a battalion chief to make sure that if there are homes downwind, Sometimes you have to put a vehicle in, in between the fire and the home and do what you can to protect the home and then get out when the fire shows up. And the foothills are not our only wildland urban interface response area, right? We have desert out south still that we cover and protect. Uh, it's just the foothills certainly get the most attention because of the homes and the risk there. But we do have a, a response out south. We do, yep, down off of uh, South Cloverdale, South Coal Road. Uh, and we, we uh, mutilate a lot with uh, CUNA fire, with Meridian. Um, and a lot of those uh, are farms. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of wheat that gets grown here. There's also a lot of fields that just don't get anything grown in them uh, during the season. And so um, our fires out there can be just as risky as they can be uh, in the foothills. In the foothills, you worry about wind and topography. When those line up, they can drive a fire and become very dangerous. Out uh, in, on the south end of town, you'd worry mostly about wind. And there's almost always wind out there, yeah. For sure. So good segue into partnerships. Now you mentioned the front is from basically Lucky Peak all the way to Middleton, that, that wildland urban interface front. 
uh, when we fight a fire, especially in the, the foothills like that, usually we're not alone. We're either helping somebody or they're helping us for the most part. Uh, those relationships are important to the work we do. They are, yeah. Uh, and they're, they're very important to, to keep up. You have to keep those relationships fresh. Um, as time changes and as, uh, as time moves on in the fire service, um, administrations and departments changes rapidly as well. And so you have to foster those relationships all the time. You might have a new chief in a district that's not used to our level of willingness to respond to their area, uh, but we need them when we need them. And so it's good to foster those things. And so um, not only do we have mutual aid agreements with all of the departments around in the area, um, we also do uh, training uh, every year, and we try to include those departments in that training as well. Um, over the years, we've had large training exercises um, that have, were pretty cumbersome to put on, and all the departments were involved in those. We've scaled back a little bit from that, um, but we are still reaching out to the adjoining districts, uh, having those conversations, um, and just and, you know maintaining a ready response for them. The fire last night had uh, four different agencies at it, and that's not including the BLM, and it was actually BLM ground that was, that was burning. So we started and they'll finish it. So that BLM partnership too is another one. We're not just talking about local fire departments that we partner with, but we have a relationship with BLM, U.S. Forest Service, Idaho Department of Lands, and BLM in our area is one of those strong partnerships. Maybe talk a little bit about that partnership that we have. Yeah, I, I would say that, um, I would say that most of the local fire departments, we wouldn't be where we are today with our capability if it wouldn't have been for the guidance and the help from the BLM. Uh, that partnership started really strong in 1995 when uh, uh, we had a double fatality fire, the Point Fire in CUNA. And at that time, the fire chiefs got together in Ada County and they formed a wildfire steering uh, committee. And that committee's uh, orders were to get annual training set up identify the problems that were found in the point fire and then train uh, and train cooperatively every year. And that, uh, that committee ran for 20 years, uh, meeting uh, two or three times a year, setting up the annual training. Um, and that fostered relationships that are still there now. Uh, the, the superintendents and the battalion chiefs and the leaders of the local BLM office were people that I grew up with fighting fire here in the Boise area. And so we've watched those relationships uh, get better and continue to grow. And, uh, and we're stronger now. We've got, um, we've got a, a great uh, infrastructure as far as radio systems are concerned. We went to 700 megahertz uh, a few years ago and BLM stayed um, with VHF frequencies and we can patch those on a fire now. So we've got uh, continuous communications. Uh, and that was, uh, first couple of years was a little rough with that, uh, but now it's pretty seamless. It just happens on every fire and it allows us all to be together, increases our safety, uh, increases our productivity, because we can all get to work faster on the fire without having to worry about communication. And a lot of good coordination with commanding officers from the BLM and local jurisdictions. Uh, it's been a great partnership. Yeah, and we, we go uh, to Unified Command a lot in those where Boise has uh, assets that we're trying to protect and the BLM does too, or when their ground is threatened. Uh, we'll usually do a Unified Command and they're more than willing to open the door and let our um, commanders get in their vehicle or vice versa so we can learn from one another and, and run things uh, smoother, safer. 
So we talked local and regional. Now let's shift over, Garrett, talk a little bit about state and then even national response. Boise Fire is proud to be able to deploy assets, sometimes not as many as we'd like. Uh, to the instance we have both within Idaho and outside Idaho, you're one of those members that has deployed. You came from that world. Uh, why is it important that we as Boise Fire also be able to offer a helping hand to Idaho and even the nation, quite honestly. I think just what you mentioned right there is that helping hand. It's a chance where when we get a big fire in the foothills or something like that, we're gonna get resources by from across the nation. They're gonna come help us. So it's a chance to kind of pay it forward, get maybe a brush rig out or a couple single resources out, get them out doing work, and also gets those individuals a chance to get out in a different fuel type potentially, learn some different fire skills that they can bring back to the department and we can kind of spread across the group. Yeah, it's huge that our members, by deploying out, A, we're helping, right? And that's really what the fire service globally is all about, is helping each other. But the experience you gain, I'll never forget the first forest fire I went to and saw the trees topping. And, and it's just a completely different experience than anything you'd experience in sagebrush or even grass. So to get that experience for our firefighters, they're able to bring that knowledge back here and, and apply it. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and the cool thing about it is we can take some of our younger members that can get on these grass fires. If you go for like two weeks, you're going to get the equivalent of probably a couple of years worth of time here in the city. So you get to see how the ICS system works. You get to interact with a bunch of different uh, resources across the nation, individuals. Here in the Valley, you kind of work with the same people all the time. There's a chance to learn how to build teams quickly in a a high stress environment yeah. and learn how to kind of work as a team to accomplish goals. Yeah. And most of those fires are very big and complex. Complex meaning lots of different divisions, lots of different factions, something you don't always experience on the structural side day to day, right? Uh, and then I get asked this a lot, well, how much is that costing us the taxpayers to send folks to California to assist? And either Brian or Gary, you can chime in, you both deployed you know how this works, but the answer is zero. It doesn't cost the taxpayers anything. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I can take that one. So the, the way it works is um, when we actually send a resource out to, say, California, like you're talking about, the fire actually pays for them to be there the entire time, their overtime, their base pay, all that stuff. And then the fire actually pays to cover their shifts back at home. So the net cost to the city is zero. We're, we're a, a net, net zero sum, basically, while we're gone. So that we get all the benefits that go into the fire, and it doesn't cost the taxpayer here in the county any more than it did previous to it. And the, the apparatus are reimbursed as well. For yep, the yeah, we get paid for their time down there. So it, it really costs us nothing and it, we get all the benefit from it and we get to go help someone else that's in a time of need, so. Perfect, love it. We talked about training a little bit earlier. We have one coming up, I think tomorrow. We were talking about it before we started here, a big valley-wide uh, wildland fire training with all the agencies, but there's other specialty training that our firefighters do in preparation for the season. What's that special training or extra training they do above and beyond with these? Yeah, so to become red card qualified, which we're trying to get all our members to do, we're not there yet, but we're working that way. Uh, you have to go through a refresher every year. So we, we teach a baseline set of classes when they go through the recruitment academy, it's called S130 and 190. Uh, and then every year you have to do what's called a, a RT130. So basically a refresher class, which is supposed to be eight hours with a little bit of hands-on, some radio, some stuff like that. So every year we have a basically an online course that we do for a couple months in the spring. And then we try and do a hands-on class kind of get everyone refreshed, ready for fire season. So we typically put that on early May and then we're ready as things dry out currently like we are in July, ready, ready for wildfires. Awesome. So we got training covered, we got response covered. From your perspectives as a shift commander and a training captain, what challenges do we still have here in our city when it comes to that wildland urban interface? I think the biggest challenge that I'm seeing personally is a lack of experience. 
Uh, we've got folks that are coming on and there's so much change and turnover in our department and in most departments right now that firefighters, uh, when I was growing up in fire, we were, we were going on grass fires every week. We had them all the time. And now we're not getting as many. Um, and so without that hands-on knowledge and seeing what you're actually dealing with, it's quite an experience to go on one for the first time. A uh, lot of smoke, they're running, they're three-dimensional, a uh, lot of radio communications going on, which is so different than a structure fire. Sometimes it puts people a little bit at, at odds uh, with it and how to, how to get it under control and how to tame all of that. So that's kind of what we're focusing in on our training. We're trying to bridge that gap of the not so much experience with trying to put some slides in people's minds. The training that we did this spring uh, was hands-on. It was scenario-based to try to build um, just a picture for some of the captains, some of the drivers and the firefighters, what it's gonna look like and how it should be organized. If we can, if we can do that, uh, we're gonna increase our safety. Uh, the rules of engagement would be the same across the board. And that's really what we're striving for. That, that increases safety in itself. And so I think that's our biggest challenge right now. And we'll get, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Gary, what do you think? I would agree. I think it's the same deal. Uh, just getting that experience in the wildland capacity is different than structure fires. And yep. we need to get a couple more slides like he's talking about in the slide deck. And uh, some things that we're working on currently is getting people out on assignments so that we can get those things. The, the refresher training that we're talking about, trying to make it more realistic. Yep. And then also we're trying, as the Fed starts to work on more of a all hands, all lands kind of right. situation, right. trying to give it involved there is more prescribed burning and stuff like that. So people get some torch time and get comfortable with wildland fire in other aspects than just dealing with foothills fires. I love that you mentioned all, all lands, all hands. That was U.S. Forest Service Chief Randy Moore that came out last year, uh, reiterated that, has come out again this year and reiterated that. Uh, we've got some time together down in Reno. Talk a little bit about uh, some of the expanded training, if you will, or the conferences that we go to for some of our leadership that is in uh, the discussion at the national level. We have the Wildfire Commission going on right now. Uh, that was ordered by Congress to look at the wildfire problem because we've had Thomas Tubbs, Paradise, Colorado, here, take your pick. Uh, and those fires have been devastating. And I think Congress is now saying, how do, we, how do we do better tomorrow than we're doing today? Talk a little bit about what we do beyond just uh, the response side and the training side here locally and how we get folks involved uh, in broader national discussions. Yeah, like I said, we went down to that conference in Reno, the Urban Interface Conference, and uh, definitely just meeting and talking to a lot of people. There's a lot of money coming off the Fed side for all these big projects, but a lot of people aren't sure how we're gonna implement this stuff. And I think that's kind of where we can come in as a department is help the Boise and the Payette as we move forward with project to potentially get them some extra hands to get prescribed fire done, maybe some mitigation type stuff besides what we're doing here in the city. So I think there's, there's avenues to help out our neighbors as we kind of grow this program. Perfect. Now we're joined by Jerry McAdams, our captain of wildfire mitigation. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for being here. So we just talked to Brian and, and Garrett about our response and our training side of the house, but equally as important, uh, sometimes if not more important, is the mitigation work we do and the education we do with the community to try and either A, prevent the fire from happening in the first place or B, limit its damage. So explain to the, to the listeners what we do at Boise Fire when it comes to mitigation work uh, in the foothills and then throughout the city. Thank you, Chief. You talked about a couple things there. You talked about prevention and mitigation. They really both work together. Uh, with prevention, we think about the history of fires in the Boise front. Over a 50 year period of time, 86% of those fires are human caused. So we really wanna make sure that 
that people are doing the right kind of things to not only protect themselves and their communities, but also to protect our other values at risk, our wildlife habitat, our watersheds, endangered plant species, and so on. So there's a lot of other things at stake there that a lot of people don't necessarily think about, right? Uh, a lot of folks think about the, the lightning strike um, that ends up you know, burning up towards communities, but they don't often think about that prevention piece and the fires that are actually starting around roadways and communities in the first place that are endangering, endangering these other uh, values at risk. And so that's something that we wanna keep uh, fresh in people's minds is, is do the right kinds of things around your properties, particularly during fire season like it is right now. Don't be lighting off fireworks next to dry grass. Don't be cutting on a fence post right next to dry grass. You know, make sure your uh, chains on your trailers are cinched up so that they are not dragging along the roadway as you're driving down the roadway and those, those sort of things. Uh, the mitigation piece is really mitigating the risk that's already there, uh, taking care of and reducing the amount of risk uh, that's already there. So by limbing up trees on people's properties, cleaning out gutters along people's roof lines, um, making sure that there's a zero to five foot fuel-free area around those properties so that when embers do rain down around those structures, that that stuff's not gonna catch the fire immediately and end up endangering the home. Uh, there's a misconception, like for years we've been, we've been doing mitigation, since 2011, we've right. been doing mitigation here in Boise. Uh, we have a, a robust uh, wildfire mitigation team with the city of Boise. And, and one thing that we've heard time and time again is that, you know, people are like, well, my home doesn't butt right up against open space, so I'm not at risk. And that could be the furthest thing from, from the truth. You know, when, when you think about um, homes like Paradise, as you'd mentioned earlier, right? Paradise wasn't even in a wildland urban interface area, it wasn't in a designated wildland urban interface area, yet it burned. And it was because of high home ignitability and then home to home destruction. We have that same propensity here for windblown fire to loft embers up to a mile away from the, the flame front, land on some ignitable material around someone's house, and then that house burn the next house next to it, next to it, particularly during a windblown sort of condition. And so those are the things that we, we worry ourselves with as a wildfire mitigation team for the city. We have an interdisciplinary uh, wildfire mitigation team, which is really unique across the country. When we, when we do different meetings and, and, you know, in the Reno conference, talking to different folks, there's nobody else out there that's doing that where they've got the parks department, public works, planning and development services, the fire department, and the mayor's office all working together collaboratively to make sure that, you know, that things don't burn in their community. You know, you mentioned uh, paradise. Let me go back to that because I think it, it sheds light on how mitigation truly does work. About a week or so after that fire burned through, I was part of a team that got to tour Paradise. We were with Chief Hawks, who was the Paradise Fire Chief, but also a Cal Fire Division Chief. He was there when it started. He had two Cal Fire crews, that was it, when, when Paradise first started burning. But as we went on the bus tour, uh, they took us to an area up by the reservoir that they had done mitigation work on. And it told the story because you had a lot of burn on the ground, but that was it. There was no devastation, no trees, uh, no big ember spread or fire spread. It was all on the ground because they had cleaned everything up and burned it off and done mitigation work. As opposed to right in the middle of the city. And the irony about Paradise is they were just starting their cleanup of all the pine needles and all that. Uh, and we're about halfway through it as a community. But I think what it showed me was how well mitigation works, especially in those wildfire prone areas that 
certainly Northern California, Southern California, and here in Boise, Idaho, we can be prone to. So I, th I think uh, the message of mitigation isn't just one what you can do, but it's public education as well, correct? Correct. And, and so we have uh, a team of folks. We've got myself and we've got two wildland fuel techs. We go out and do home assessments. We walk around properties with the homeowner at their request. And they can go on adafireadapted.org. Uh, and sign up for a free wildfire home safety evaluation. We'll walk around the property with them, point out ignition vulnerabilities, things that they may not have thought of before that, that could pose a risk to their house, like a, a grass mat parked up against a wooden threshold. A grass mat is just fine dead fuel compact into a grass mat. And so if that catches an ember, it's gonna get to flaming combustion and then they could lose their house. And so things like that, that homeowners may not readily notice. We point those ignition vulnerabilities out provide some prescriptive measures to the homeowners on things that they could do to, to work incrementally over time to make sure that them and their families are safer from the threat of wildfire. So not just education around the home, but even education with uh, homeowners and subdivisions in our wildland urban interface about evacuations. I know you work with Rachel Holford, our emergency manager, as well as the county emergency management team, talking about how do we evacuate if we have to. That's part of that education. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. We had a great community meeting with Warm Springs Mesa uh, Warm Springs Mesa is really one of the leaders in our community in terms of wildfire mitigation, evacuation planning, and all that kind of stuff. It was a very productive meeting and uh, really looking at our model for ready, set, go, you know, ready being that first stage where people are prepared, set, they're ready to actually evacuate and then go, go, and go early. Uh, that's the kind of terminology that we're going to use in our area. In addition to that, you know, we have Code Red through Ada County, uh, and we highly recommend that people go on to the Ada County website, Ada County Sheriff's Office website, look for Code Red, sign up for Code Red. That's an early notification system uh, for any natural disaster, including wildfire. Yep, and, and we'll also make a great plug for Code Red. Uh, I'd make even yet another plug for PulsePoint as well. I think PulsePoint is a community uh, app that will notify you of some of the things we're responding to. So you might receive that early notification of a vegetation fire in your area as well before you even get a notification from Code Red to, to evacuate. Oh, for sure. Uh, Pulse Point's great. A lot of times the folks in the community know about a fire occurrence before dispatch even notifies us because they've got that Pulse Point application. Yeah. What, so you mentioned the free home inspection, which I think uh, we're a little bit unique in that we offer that and I'm very proud that we do. But we do more than just home inspections. Let's talk about the chipper program and some of the work we're doing on that side of the mitigation house as well. Yeah, for reducing fuels in our community, since 2011, we've done a lot of different sort of unique things. Uh, we used to be noted uh, on a national scale as kind of being the goat folks, right? The people doing goat grazing and, and that sort of thing. Although goat grazing has been going on in California for a very, very long period of time since the 1980s. It just hadn't happened here much uh, until we ended up doing that here in the Boise Valley. Uh, so we've done a lot of goat grazing for wildfire mitigation over the years. Uh, we've kind of scaled back on that for numerous different reasons, but primarily right now our focus is on helping people reduce hazardous woody biomass on their own properties by providing a free chipping service. Whereas uh, they sign up for this free chipping service, we have various different dates throughout the spring and fall that we do this, and we're limited to about 20 homes per day when we go out there. That's, that's about the most that we can chip and haul off. Uh, but those folks can sign up for that again on adafireadapted.org on that website and and they just haul their stuff to their curb stack at curbside we roll up chip it haul it off for free uh, we recycle that material so we take it to parks 
community forestry division. It goes in a big compost pile. They mix it on a regular basis and then they sell that recycled compost back to the community at a very reduced rate. Uh, so if people are looking for that, that's again, part of our you know, community partnership working with the other departments. So even on the mitigation prevention, when we talked to uh, Chief Ashton, we talked about our partnerships and we talked about local partnerships and also BLM. Do we have those same partnerships in the prevention mitigation space? Far as larger scale partnerships in our area, beyond just our city wildfire mitigation team, we also have the Ada Fire Adapted Working Group. And the Ada Fire Adapted Working Group is set up to uh, really engage with our other stakeholders in the area, the other districts, but also other levels of government. So Idaho Fish and Games involved, Ada Soil and Water Conservation District, Southwest Idaho RCND, BLM, Forest Service, uh, NRCS, like all these different players are all engaged, working together to see how we can uh, maybe do some cost sharing opportunities and you know different you know fuel mitigation work potentially together, but also to share information about grants and different opportunities that are out there uh, where we can you know find some efficiencies by working together, right. and so that's what that Ada Fire Adaptive Working Group is all about. But that is based on the Fire Adaptive Communities concept, which is an overarching umbrella. It's an understanding that everybody plays a part in wildfire preparedness and mitigation, uh, that wildfire affects all of us, whether it's smoke in the air that has hazardous health effects or you know, folks who are directly impinged by fire because they live next to open space uh, or even some of the economic interest, right? When there's smoke in the air, you know, Ashland, Oregon, the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon lost over a million dollars in one year because there was just smoke in the air, not because there's a wildfire in the area, but just because there's smoke in the air. So there's all these different interests and wildfire is truly everyone's fight. And so uh, with that, you know, that's the, that quote I heard from Justice Jones with the Austin Fire Department, who's a good friend. And on a national scale, you know, there's, there's a lot of collaborative work going on as well through the Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network, uh, through the fire department exchange that we helped the Austin Fire Department and International Association of Fire Chiefs, we helped them create that program uh, and did you know five successful uh, fire department exchanges where we brought a lot of different departments together, 10 departments on each exchange to collectively talk about different ideas of you know suppression and mitigation and you know sending people out on assignments and how that could help the cities financially you know, to offset some costs for, for brush rigs and different things of that sort. And so um, collaborative partnerships are key, Chief, to everything that we do in wildfire mitigation and in training and in operations, all of it, right? And I think that's that segues really nicely into, you know, I love that you talked earlier about uh, habitat. You talked earlier about watershed because fire does, does play an effect on watershed. You've got policies, both local, state, and national and it really brings us into the National Cohesive Strategy, which is a guiding document. You know, years ago, they created a document called America's Burning. That was to understand the structural fire loss and how do we mitigate and prevent structural fire loss. Uh, we know that Congress is, has acted. They have put together a commission that's looking at wildfire in all avenues, not just response, but mitigation, prevention, education, it's also tying in things that I don't think we've thought about before, like insurance, right? When folks are losing their insurance premiums because of a wildfire or a threat of a wildfire, that's a challenge for communities everywhere. The National Cohesive Strategy, of which you've been a, a big advocate for, very knowledgeable on, something that we try and meet and follow, 
Tell our viewers about the National Cohesive Strategy and why is it important for the Boise Fire Department to really care about a national strategy like that? How do we play into that? Right, so the national strategy for folks who aren't aware of it, um, you know, the, the federal government went around, did a listening tour back in like 2012, 2013, started putting the strategy together in 2014. It came out in 2015. And uh, the National Cohesive Wildland Fire Management Strategy or National Cohesive Strategy for, uh, for short, has three different tenants or goals. And one is safe, effective, and risk-based wildfire response, which you know Chief Ashton talked greatly about. Uh, one is resilient landscapes, and that is you know creating fuel breaks and landscapes that'll bounce back from the threat of wildfire, like you talked about with Paradise, and that one particular area where they limbed up trees, they took care of some of the understory, maybe done some mastication work, and maybe some prescribed fire, and really prepped the area so that it's resilient and could bounce back from a wildfire like that. And, and it did in that particular case. Uh, so that's some of the work that we're doing in the mitigation realm. And then the last uh, goal is fire adapted communities and, and building those fire adapted communities, which is really that partnership based approach and making communities more resilient uh, to the threat of wildfire but by making sure the homes are set up for success. Uh, Chief Ashton said something earlier about the response piece that is really pivotal. And that's that, uh, you know, he's, he mentioned that they do a lot of like protecting of homes, right? right? Right. If we don't have to worry about the homes because the homeowners have done their part, right? And made their homes standalone from the threat of wildfire, we can focus on getting the fire put out sooner. Yep. Makes us more efficient at what we do so that it threatens less homes, less people, less lives and that sort of thing. And we're not putting firefighters in harm's way. And so we really rely on those homeowners to be that partner in that fire adapted communities concept to do their part and engage in the problem so that we can be more effective and efficient at what, you know, at what we do from a, from a suppression standpoint. Awesome, love it. Well, Jerry, thanks for joining us uh, to talk about mitigation, prevention, some of the national work that's being done. Anything else you wanna add? No, I appreciate it, Chief. Thank awesome. you for the opportunity. Right. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Boise, for tuning in. We hope you join us next month for another exciting episode of the Mission Strong podcast.